I am so incredibly excited to be here again with you. We're really diving deep and I, I want to focus a little bit on the subject of emotions, on the subject of feelings, because we all have them. They're hard to understand as a human being. They often shape our lives or the suppression, repression of them shapes our lives as well. And there's nothing better than to be able to bring that into the forefront and really look at our relationship to ourselves and do we allow ourselves authentic self-expression and let ourselves just be human it is such a hard thing to do sometimes and on even the best of days allowing ourselves our range of feelings is complicated wouldn't it be so easy if being a human was simple but it's not so here we are you know before i introduce this week's guest who Man, she is the author of one of the best books I've read in the last year. Uh, and that book is just so fantastic. It's called It's Not Always Depression. And it really just changed a lot of the perspective I had on emotion and how to understand them and how to transform them and how to express and just how to trace things back. You'll see what we're talking about when you listen to the podcast episode. But before we do that, I wanted to let you know about my breakup recovery course that I created that is all about a five-week journey of joining you as you try to, and successfully, move through a past relationship that's likely holding you back. So if you feel in any way that you're not over your ex or their image is popping up in your mind as you try to open your heart to new love, there's nothing better than looking at our past and converting it to wisdom. I mean, that's the reason that our past remains painful is because we haven't given it a purpose. So if you want to check out more about this course, go to bit.ly slash breakup rebirth. So bit.ly slash breakup rebirth. And go check that out and sign up and let me join you for the next five weeks as we transition and heal and move forward and take reclamation. You know, we reclaim our lives and our hearts so that we can find love and create more love. Also, if you could go to wherever you listen to this and give it a five-star review and a written review, that really helps bump it up in the rankings so other people can hear it. And if you love this episode or any previous ones, please share them. That is so helpful. And it gets it into people's ears who need it. So thank you for your support and your love and all those things. And this week's interviewee, is that the right term? I think so, um, is Hillary Hendel, who is just the most wonderful human. I'm so happy I got to connect with her. And we talk about the sort of scientific side of feelings. And the, uh, you know, as someone who wants to break things down in a systemized approach, where, you know, especially if we're very, uh, let's just call it logical, or our mind is more linear focused, then often we need research and steps and stages and things like that. She really provides that. So I'm so excited for you to hear this week's episode and to just hear how it affects you and how it helps you transform and understand your feelings so that you can show up as your full authentic self and really give birth to all of you. So without further ado, here is Hillary Jacobs Hendel. Welcome to another episode of the Mark Groves podcast with Hillary Jacobs Hendel. I love three names. It sounds so official. 
<laughs> Welcome, Hillary. I appreciate you being here. Thanks, Mark. I'm so happy to be speaking. So Hillary is an author. The, the way that I found uh, you was through your book, It's Not Always Depression, which is my partner Kylie's favorite book that she has read in so long. And I was saying to Hillary before that uh, that does, that comes with a large inventory. Kai reads like two to three books a week. So when she says it's her favorite book, I'm like, oh, well, I better read it. And I did, and my mind was just blown. So I'm so grateful that you're here. Thanks. I'm so grateful to be here, actually. And, uh, you know, everything in that book changed my life personally and professionally. So I, I wrote it down so maybe others could benefit. So it's always good when somebody does. Oh, man, I'm so happy you wrote it down. And before uh, I know everyone's like, okay, well, what is the book about? Please get into it. Um, but before I do that, Hillary, I, I think I, I just love your dynamic background. And I know it's so applicable to sort of the story of how you came about uh, writing that book. But Hillary's a, a dentist <laughs> and then uh, did a master's in social work, then psychoanalysis, then AEDP, which is accelerated experimental dynamic psychotherapy. And, and I guess just more simply put, uh, you teach people emotion, teach people about emotion, an emotional educator. Exactly. Right. I teach people what are emotions and how to understand them. And then, of course, you know, the, the main thing is what do we do with emotions? We don't want to bury them because that really creates illness. So if we're not going to bury them and they're painful and they're mysterious and they can be quite distressing, what do we do with them? where we can do something beneficial for ourselves and that feels safe enough. Well, I think, you know, for so many people, including myself and so many people listening, usually the first step is I don't know what I feel or I've never really known what I felt, um, whether it was suppressed or whether um, we've avoided our feelings, we've drank them away, we've smoked them away, you know, whatever we've done with them. Mm -hmm. but the first, I think, part is how, what is an emotion? Let me first just tell a quick story. I, I like to, I like to ask, I, I'm into finding out, you know, what people know about emotions because yeah. I'm, I'm still operating under the assumption that we don't get any emotion education in our schooling. And I know that there's people that are trying to change that, especially in early childhood or something called social emotional learning. But when I have um, friends come over with their kids, their, their teenagers and whatnot, I always ask them if they get any emotion education in school and they say yes. And then I say, well, I don't want to put you on the spot, but can you tell me what an emotion is? And just the other day, um, this cute guy, this young man said, well, one thing I know is that they're, they're not in the body, they're in my head. And mm. I was like, oh no, it's like, oh, you're such a but that is the total opposite of what I am teaching and what is profoundly important, which is that first and foremost, emotions are physical experiences. And maybe second most important is that emotions cannot be controlled, which we're taught in our society that they can, that if we're just strong enough and tough enough, yeah. we can exert mind over matter and pick ourselves up by our bootstraps and just get over it, all those mantras that are just false. They're, they're myths because, in fact, we need emotions to happen automatically and unconsciously because they have evolved through mammalian and, and in human history to serve as protective programs that allow us to to escape danger and to survive, yeah. move away from things that are dangerous and towards things that are good for us. 
very, very quickly, quicker than, than our big thinking brains could propel us to do. So, so emotions, they- unconscious, biological, physiological, body-based programs that get us to move. In fact, the word emotion is derived from the French and the Latin to, to move. To evoke motion, to get us moving, to get us out of the way, to get us away from the it's- tiger. Or to bring us closer to something, I would imagine, too, right? Yes. Something that's close, something to build community. Connection. Also crucial to, more crucial to survival than even uh, food in many ways. That if if we're not connected, uh, we are vulnerable. Well, and to think, you know, most of our education around feeling is maybe, you know, the most common thing, especially right now, we're talking a lot about like fight, flight, freeze, the nervous system response. And we don't really talk about the evolutionary benefit of positive emotion, you know, why positive emotion exists. And and do you want to share just a bit of that? Of Absolutely. And it's one of my favorite things to do in my practice with, with uh, the, the patients or the clients that I work with is to, is to help them understand positive emotion and to help them to build more positive, it's really building a capacity. So, you know, when we're talking about positive emotion, we're talking, uh, at least I'm talking about expansive experiences, things that literally make us feel like we take up more space, that we are, that we grow. So joy, really joy, excitement, and pride in the self are the mm-hmm. three big ones. We're socialized in our society through no one's fault, really. This, this, it's a fascinating subject on how kind of how emotions, how we came to think of emotions as being things that we shouldn't pay attention to. Yeah. But it turns out that, and these, and we, I really should, should go by saying that we all have all humans, every sex and every gender in between all cultures have the same emotions that are hard wired in the brain we can squash them and bury them and kind of convince ourselves not to have them, but they still lay there waiting for expression. So, you know, sometimes people will come and will will tell me they don't have any joy in their life. And and I assure them there's joy in there. We just have to uncover it. And then once we find even a little molecule of joy, as I say, you know, sometimes if you imagine someone just sharing something and a little smile just comes over their face, it's a, it's a quick, right? They don't even allow themselves that if they've had a very traumatic past. And I'll slow them down and I'll say, wait, 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 can we just back up and rewind? A moment ago, you were sharing this lovely uh, experience you had seeing nature, for example, or looking at a beautiful flower. And you had a brief smile. Mm-hmm. Did, you, did you notice that? And they might say, yeah. And I'm like, can we go back and tune into that smile? For a moment, how it felt on your in your face, and just stay there for a moment, noticing it, and that that's the process by which you build capacity. To you find an experience, and you have somebody stay with it a little bit, and it slowly will build because that's just the way the the mind works when you give attention to a sensation. And then what will slowly happen as someone feels the emotion doing what it's naturally supposed to do, which is to kind of come up and have energy and make you feel bigger, undoubtedly, there'll be some pushback in the form of either anxiety or embarrassment. And that's where the work is. And and those um, to kind of gently 
go back and forth between helping someone lower anxiety and lower shame so that they can allow these feelings that are positive to come forth. And when you do, they are like, they are the best nourishment for the brain. They build confidence, self-esteem. And of course, if you have the capacity to feel more joy, then you are more, you spend more time in joyful states. And so it's just a win-win. In fact, sometimes I'm convinced, and in AEDP, we do this, we look for glimmers of positive emotion And we build on them. It's it's a main kind of stay of that type of therapy. So we're not only going for the, the trauma and the, and, the, and the difficult emotions. We're going for the, the good feeling emotions. And often those are more challenging for people to feel. They're much more comfortable feeling they're, they're staying with their depression or their anxiety than because it's so vulnerable to feel good in the presence of another if you've had bad experiences with that before. And many of us have being raised in our families and our cultures, where if you felt a little bit full of yourself, you got slammed down. Oh, wow. Yeah. To think of the moment they have that positive feeling, it was not rewarded. It was actually punished. But negative feelings, especially when we sort of look at that idea of inherited emotional patterns, right? You know, like inheriting the emotional patterns of your parents, the the emotional states of mm-hmm. our families, the people around us. As soon as you have joy, they're like, "What's? Why are you so full of yourself? What's going on yeah. with you?" Exactly. You know, I think in Australia they call it tall poppy syndrome. <laughs> that who are you to be so big? Who yes. are you to? And you know, which is sort of a because you know what you're saying uh, reminded me of. I was sitting with a friend who was sharing with a large group of us, and and her father was there, and she was saying, "I've just been feeling really anxious and." She was moving away and doing all these different things. And I said, well, anxiety um, sounds like the exact feeling you might have when you're moving away and your whole life's changing. I said, maybe there's some excitement in there and it's being coded as anxiety. And her father said to her, well, no, you know, we have a chemical thing in our family and we're actually prone to anxiety. And I was like, what? Like Mm -hmm. now you've just, and he said, maybe we should go get treatment for that. And I thought, oh, wow, this is not my place to have a conversation that I really want to have. But do you want to speak to that? Because that's a common narrative to the culture we're in, which, you know, I used to be a pharmaceutical rep, so I'm well aware of the narrative around mental health and treating it. But I, I would be fascinated to get your thoughts on that narrative that it's a chemical imbalance um, that is inherited and that is not something that's due to our actual state or life or way of being, because I know in your book, what was so beautiful is how we can go through, and I don't want to give anything away, but how we can through understanding Mm -hmm. feelings and then making all that stuff make sense. I just thought that's a very relevant example because so many people hear that type of thing. Right. We really do live in in a society where the sort of the first thought is to medicate something. And of course, people are suffering, you know, whether it's anxiety or depression or ruminating um, various uh, diagnoses. So again, these are such big questions, but I guess let me just begin with an example from myself a bit, is that when I was training, I I was raised by a a psychiatrist and there was talk of, of how to help people, but there was no mention of emotions. And I had a lot of anxiety when I was young that I didn't even realize until later that I was anxious because I did a good job of covering it up. Mm -hmm. And when I 
it was really when I first was training in this method that I had just stumbled on that I heard the idea that anxiety was really a, um, a, a way to push down are these things called core emotions that I mentioned before, these inborn responses to the environment. And it made so much sense to me what I learned that it really, it changed the way that I understood anxiety. And, and now after practicing in this method for over 15 years, I, I don't want to give the idea that medication is not of use because... Yeah. Sometimes it is, yeah. but sometimes there's genetic factors to anxiety. Uh, there's no doubt, you know, why do we develop, why does one person develop an eating disorder? Another, another person develop generalized anxiety and another person develop depression. But I guess the main message is that no matter what you're feeling there, that is the tip of an iceberg of a story. It's not the end of the story. I'm anxiety and therefore I take a pill. A pill may help yeah. temporarily, but we can really start to heal the, our symptoms by learning about how emotions work in the mind and body to create symptoms. And they do that exactly. And it makes so much sense. If you think of a, of a core emotion as coming up through the body. Yeah as a huge force that has impulses and energy, not in the woo-woo sense of energy, even though I have, you know, no problem with that, but really as a science nerd myself, it, with biological energy, the way we, we get a temperature uh, fever, there's energy happening all over in our body all the time that makes us be able to breathe and carry out the functions. And so emotions have this emotional energy that pushes up and out. And when we learned as children that emotions are not welcome or that they, we will be humiliated for our feelings or will be abandoned for our feelings, which again, through no fault of our parents, because they, they didn't get any emotion education. Someone did it to them too. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Just what we all thought we were supposed to do. But when we, when we learn non-consciously, it's sort of by modeling and automatic that our emotions are not welcome, we learn to spare us the pain of repeating that experience of having a big emotion and being rejected for it. There's few things more excruciating than that experience. And the way we hold down our emotions is with muscular constriction. It's really through constriction in all sorts of ways. And it's, and that's the feeling of anxiety. Anxiety is like a massive constriction that's pushing down emotions and so when we then get to those get to those underlying emotions, our anxiety naturally goes down. So we can temporarily with medication, but if we really want to have a prescription for the long term, that prescription is working with our emotions to learn how to validate them. Basically, we're look, we have to learn how to experience an emotion in a safe way. And everyone can learn to do that. Yeah, so they can learn how to do this process where, so when you talk about core emotions, mm -hmm. um, what are they for the people listening? Yeah, the core emotions that I write about in the book, uh, I guess I, I'll just say a caveat that there are researchers and scientists that have small debates about what core emotions, which are the core emotions, and I can explain kind of the ones that I left out. The ones that I left in were sadness, anger, 
fear, disgust, joy, excitement, and sexual excitement. And these are um, in this change triangle, which is this tool, uh, an emotional health and public health tool that I that I explained and, sh- and shared in the book. The reason I chose these seven core emotions is because these are the ones that cause us the most problems when we block. There are researchers that say surprise is a core emotion. And surprise is, um, you know, and again, it's the idea that it comes up quickly and it's not inhibitory in nature. It just comes from the environment, right? All these core emotions are basically responses to the environment. So if somebody pokes you in the arm, you know, I'm going to get mad, right? That's a core or as you moment ago, clean anger, right? If uh, if a big lion was to just burst into my room here, I would be, I would, fear would be triggered off in the middle of my brain unconsciously, and I'd start to run even before I knew I was afraid. It would only be really after that I run to safety that my um, cerebral, my cortex could now evaluate what happened and say, okay, that was really scary. And uh, am I safe now? But in the moment, these emotions just come up very quickly, like a big giant wave. Yeah. If we get out of our way, the wave comes up and, and crescendos and then comes down and our nervous system goes back to normal once the danger is, is over. We bury and block them with in, these other types of emotions that are inhibitory in nature, like anxiety, guilt, shame. These are all inhibitory emotions. And um, there's kind of a, a polarity. Core emotions are coming up and we push them down when we don't know how to deal with them with these other inhibitory emotions. But I can't remember your initial question that got me talking about. About which ones were the core emotions. But I'm, okay. So let's say, for example, we have a young person who's like a little kid and gets that. I, I think it's easy to give the gender-based example of like a little boy who you know, dad's like, be a man, don't show any sadness, but that happens to everybody too. So I don't want to exclude anyone. So um, let's just imagine that a little kid has said, don't be sad, tough up, toughen up, you know, something like that. Mm-hmm. And sadness. So then the, the emotion of sadness and the expression of sadness would be associated with rejection by dad. Exactly. And, and then what would happen if we were to move through that triangle you were talking about? Yeah. So you mean if that little boy came to me as a grown up? Yeah. The, yeah. So how might that, if we were to reverse engineer? Yeah. <laughs> how might uh, that go up? Exactly. And that's really, you know, um, and I don't know whether it'd be helpful for people listening to pull up the triangle. Yeah. We'll have it in the downloads and we'll make sure, but, but speak to it as if they don't have it in. Yeah. Kind of. um, okay. So the brain has a tendency to remember the, the, the stuff that's painful. Yeah. So at, at the time that little boy is crying, let's say he skinned his knee and he, um, or let's say somebody took his toy away from him, right? And he's crying because he's sad. And his father said, you know, boys don't cry, man up, stop being such a sissy, right? That would, that would create this terrible experience called shame. Yeah. And shame is an, is an emotion. It's an affect, meaning it's, again, a body-based emotion that really I would encourage everybody to read about. And maybe I can give you some book resources because yeah, for sure. shame is something that nobody wants to talk about actually until Brené Brown started talking about it, which is so wonderful. And it's something that everybody experiences and it's, it's individual for everyone. It's learned in a context. 
And shame binds to other emotions. So in the case of this little boy, he's feeling sadness, right? Without a care in the world. And then all of a sudden, boom, he's insulted. And now the brain is wiring so that, because the brain wires in our experience. Um, now shame is bound to sadness. So this, this young boy grows up and it's very likely that every time he feels sad, he's going to get triggered with a, a, little, a little jolt of shame. Wow. And going to hold his emotions of sadness down. Now, if you keep holding your emotions of sadness and other emotions down, you're eventually going to start to become symptomatic. So, and, so any of the core emotions mm-hmm. you mentioned, if mm-hmm. we continue to suppress them, mm-hmm. start to get symptomatic. Okay. Yes. And that's why we, I, I believe we have a culture of anxiety everyone's anxious and depressed and kids are more anxious and depressed. And if we're not feeling, if we're not feeling our symptoms, they are pretty much guarded with defenses, which are the ways, the brilliant and creative ways that the mind spares us pain. And there's a myriad of, of protective defenses that we use from drinking and drugging to, um, to kind of contemptuous, uh, disdain for everybody. Like I don't give a crap about anything defense, uh, all these different ways. But let's say the reason people come into therapy are not when their defenses are working well. (laughs) Yeah, that's true. It's when we feel pain. So let's say this young man grows up, this young boy grows up to be a man and he starts to feel depressed and empty and lonely, um, which are all symptoms of suppressed emotions then he would come in and I would explain to him how emotions work. I would show him actually the illustrate the illustration of the change triangle, which is an academic map that I, I, I took from the academic literature and I made it easy for everyone to understand. And I, I was teaching it for years in my practice before I wrote the book. And then I <clears throat> had the opportunity to share it with everyone. And I believe everyone could benefit. But I would I would teach him about the relationship between his sadness and his depression and his anxiety. And I would explain to him first intellectually that what we have to do is, is, is help you access the sadness underneath from various memories uh, in the past or from something, you know, something in the present, we could get there various ways. And that eventually we will, I'll help him feel his sadness and his symptoms are going to go way down. And then as a man, he'll probably be like, oh my God, I don't want to feel any feelings and that's bad. Week, and then I'll say, you know, where did you learn that? And uh, I'll pretty much normalize that that's learned by um, almost every little boy, maybe in the world. And we'll kind of try to transform that that shamed young part of him so that he understands that he was taught that, but that feelings aren't inherently weak. In fact, it's very strong. It's much stronger to be able to process an emotion than to bury it. And um, that usually makes people feel good to hear that. And it's absolutely true probably go down in therapy is we'll be he'll be talking and I'll notice that he'll be saying something sad or I'll notice we're trained in in really being detectives of, of nonverbal behavior because that's mm-hmm. how you really access unconscious material where you can't you don't know you're sad but you'll I'll be able to see it in a facial expression or body posture and I might gently say you know you're you're talking about how your father was never there for you. I see that there's feeling in your face. Can we just really slow down so that you can tune in 
And did you notice that too? And, you know, sometimes there'll be a yes and sometimes there'll be a no, but assuming uh, the man said, yes, I noticed that too. I'll say, you know, where do you feel that sadness in your body? And through locating it in the body, we're just going to be with it, really paying attention to it. It's as simple as just changing the focus so that you're focusing on the physical sensation of sadness with a stance of curiosity and compassion for yourself, no judgment at all. And, you know, like a surgeon uses a scalpel for his job, really focused attention is the way that I help people create change in their brain. And so by focusing in on the sadness, it will start to allow it to come up. And then either that person will be able to actually in that moment, you know, have a cry or feel let let the wave of core emotion of sadness come up, or they'll be thwarted by anxiety or shame that will come up. In which case, I'll stop what I'm doing with the core emotion and shift now to helping someone lower their anxiety or change their shame. And we kind of go back and forth, going to the core emotion, then going to the inhibitory emotions. And each time you do that, we're rewiring the brain to help make space for the core emotions. And then, of course, once someone can have that full release, and I show this through stories in the book because it's sort of hard to understand. You use great cases in the book. Yeah. Um, but once somebody has a full wave of emotion for the first time since they were a kid, they were so terrified of having that. And they have that with me. And it's like, everything is fine. And I'm fine. And they're fine. And they're like, oh, my God, I feel so much better. And that's what I was afraid of for 40 years. <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> join the club. But that's yeah. how it works. And then slowly, you know, what I now think of mental health is the ability to experience all the seven core emotions with minimal anxiety and shame. So that from then on, as as we go forward in life, when there are losses or fears or things come up in life, one will be able to feel the feelings, validate them, honor them, name them, and and listen to what they're telling us because they're there for a reason. Let them move through us. And then again, then through that process, we become calmer, we become more connected, we become more compassionate, we become more curious, all these C's that I talk about in the book. And basically, we become more authentically who we were meant to be. We become fuller because we're now integrated. It's not only our thoughts, but we're adding in our emotions and the two together make for a full person. Yeah. So you go from, because that work is about re-embodying, right? Like yes. taking these people who, when I say these people, I mean myself too. Yes. I'll... Get in our head. Mm-hmm. We stay in our head because it's safe. Mm-hmm. And when feelings come up, uh, I was telling Hillary right before we started recording about how when I started to rediscover anger, I, I was so detached from anger. I had no relationship to anger. My anger was, I was like pressure cooker, you know? So like I'd take, I'd take a lot and then all of a sudden I'd blow because that was the only, I mean, I couldn't hold anymore. Mm-hmm. Blow, even my blow up was probably suppressed, <laughs> you know, like even that was, but it, it's interesting because there's so many layers to that, of course, because that's, I didn't really learn great boundaries. So I didn't know how to say stop before, you know, the, the, mm-hmm. the walking on the doormat behavior that I had. And then when it builds up and builds up, but I would have anxiety, I would have anxiety but when I finally tapped in to anger and experience like the expression of rage in a safe way, 
um, in the expression. And I like to use boxing as a way of expressing anger and just moving it through my body. What I found was then a lot of grief came out of me. And then not only did a lot of grief come out of me just in that after anger did, but then all of a sudden it, it just continued to come without any language for it for a little while. You know, like I would just be sad for a little while because I hadn't felt it in so long. Yeah. I'm guessing that's a fairly normal. Yes, yes, yes. Where the sadness is just um, once we haven't felt it in a while, then it just comes in waves when we get to know it again. Yes. Is that something you see a lot? Yes. It's something I see quite a lot and, and for various different reasons. And, you know, anger is such an important topic and subject for us to talk about and for people to understand because um, naturally people struggle with anger because anger can be so what people feel until you understand anger is anger can be so destructive. Um, we are scared. We're going to hurt people with our anger. And in fact, many people as children and adults are deeply hurt physically, emotionally, sexually by rage and anger. And it's particularly gratifying to explain first and foremost that experiencing anger or any emotion is entirely an internal experience. There's no action that when we're doing it by the definition that I am using to experience a core emotion is something between you and your, and that emotion, you don't do anything. And then, of course, once we experience an emotion, we have to figure out how to channel it constructively, right? That's the name of the game. So we don't hurt ourselves, we don't hurt others, and we don't hurt our relationships, whether it's personal or with our um, employees and or our bosses and our colleagues. So, so I just wanted to sort of to clarify that, that when we're talking about anger, we're talking about an internal experience of anger, which means... Because if I was listening to this, I'd be thinking, well, what does that mean to experience an emotion? It means, one, to know you're having it, that I can say I'm, I'm angry. It means that I, can, that I can label it as anger and I can label it in my body. I can say I am now feeling my anger in my stomach. It feels like, like I feel movement of energy coming up. I can feel some my, my hands falling up into fists. And I know that I have an impulse because all core emotions have impulses for actions that are designed by nature to be adaptive. Hmm. So, so the I'm, impulse being like the uh, feeling like I need to do something. Yeah, the impulse yeah, being... Like, some different behavior. Exactly. And, and anger wants to be mean. It wants yeah. to lash out. It, it wants, wants to protect. To it wants verbally, to... Exactly. It wants to fight back for protection. It's a catalyst for change. So if somebody hurts me, there's a natural instinct to want to hurt them back. But that's not, in our civilized society, that, that might have been good, you know, when everybody was fighting for their life and fighting for food and resources. But now there's no reason for anybody to fight. We can discharge yeah. the of anger in very safe ways. And there's if you a... Think about if you're, sorry, if, if you think about it, if you're in a relationship where it's not safe to be angry back, Mm -hmm. or you've never experienced the opportunity safely to be angry, then it, then it gets further suppressed. And then I would imagine that then comes out in all sorts of different ways. Exactly. All sorts of different ways. Um, and none of them good for anybody really. 
So going back to this idea of sadness, a lot of, again, the people that I see in my office often, I mean, I'm a trauma specialist, but now I really think of everybody as traumatized, really just from surviving our childhood. So it's trauma, although that is trauma, but it's really these small invisible ways that we are invalidated and abandoned and by the people that we need when we're young. So a lot of times my work, if somebody is angry, let's say at their boss or their, or their partner in present day, I will immediately try to get back to the earliest time they felt that way. Because if we can work with young experiences, it packs a real uh, transformational punch, so to speak. No yeah. <laughs> and, um, so in those cases, um, often I'm, I will work with someone again, and the book has many stories. I'm thinking of a story in the book um, of uh, Bonnie, who came in because she, again, was more detached and depressed. But when we got to her feelings of anger, it really went back to a, um, a memory in her kitchen where her father hit her. And what happens is when we process that in the original scene, often after the, the anger is fully experienced, and I do this with fantasy a lot of the time, so, so I help the person imagine what the impulse of the anger wants to do. And we use fantasy where nobody gets hurt, even though yeah. people struggle with using fantasy. They don't think that's okay. But then I explain, well, you know, if, do you think if you imagine hitting your father back, he's going to be hurt? And they're like, no, no, no. I know he's not going to be hurt if I use a fantasy. And then, okay, well, good. Let's try this. So you follow the energy in the body and see what it wants to do. And these, these, these expressions will just come to a person. It's like it's coded in the feeling. And once the anger is released, just like you said, often there will be sadness because often, especially with kids who were very much abused or neglected, they're, they're, the rage is murderous. And so we, I have people in my office imagining really killing their, their parents in all sorts of ways. And then at the end of the fantasy, where it's sort of like it's happening in real time halfway and the other half, they know that they're firmly rooted with me in the, uh, in the room. But I'll say, okay, so, you, you know, your father, you see him, they're dead on the floor. You've just beaten the crap out of him. You just stay there looking and feeling and what that's like for you. Often the next feeling after that will be sadness. Sadness mm-hmm. that this happened, you know, sadness on behalf of the, the young, young wounded child inside that they had to go through this. Sadness for the parent that they didn't know any better. Just sadness and sadness. And um, either that will they'll have a cry right there and then. But as you said, sometimes when you're really processing longstanding abuse and neglect, you move from a phase of kind of being in this denial called splitting, where you kind of, the brain can't hold the conflict of needing and loving the parent and also the parent being so abusive that it gets split in their mind. And it's almost like they have a, everything is into good and bad and black and white. And when you start to integrate those parts often there's a, a sadness that will they'll have to go through that can take as long as it takes to pass through. In, in psychoanalysis, Melanie Klein wrote about this, going through the schizoid, which is this, the compartmentalized position, uh-huh. into the depressive position, which is where Freud said life really happens, where we have to deal with a lot of loss and a lot of things not a lot of things being disappointing and not perfect and we have flaws and our partners have flaws. And when you really know that and you can deal with that, there is a a, sort of a humbling sadness that goes with that. 
that people have to often go through. And then you kind of bounce back and you're like, okay, life is, you know, is beautiful with the flaws and all. Well, yeah, when you're living in a state where you're suppressing reality and right. suppressing the truth, you're not connected to the truth, which of course is a learned survival thing, especially for a child who's been through trauma and neglect and all those things that they're going, well, I have to hold my parent in this one eye because it protects me from the truth of who they are, the disappointment, the sadness. I mean, denial is one of the greatest survival strategies. Absolutely. And we need and this doesn't exist. Yes, exactly. All the defenses are um, are really brilliant. They they get us through until the and the costs outweigh the benefits. And that's for each individual to decide. You know whether whether they are willing to relinquish some of the disconnected and defended ways of being uh, to be connected. But also, it really means accepting humanity again for this idea of flaws. Uh, flaws and all. And that's that's a very hard concept for a lot of people, primarily because of the affect of shame, which really has to be dealt with. And it's, it's not easy, but it is so worth it. It is so worth it. Uh, I wrote about an experience that uh, Oprah.com published about confronting my shame in couples therapy of not being perfect, right? Not being a perfect partner. And so many people have perfectionistic standards. Again, this is unnecessary if we, I can imagine another society where from the get-go we would be more realistic and help people feel their feelings and tolerate conflict and all sorts of things. But um, it's so, it's, it's both an excruciating experience to feel one's shame, but it is liberating when it is done and it is tolerable. And you are like reborn into a place where it's like, yeah, I'm not perfect. And that's, Okay, it's like a barrier to get through, just like all these emotions. There's like some sort of like uh, this difficult barrier. But then once you have a little coaxing and someone to help you through it, and it doesn't have to be a therapist, it could be a loving partner, it could be a loving friend, it could be a support group. But when you're on the other side of it, it's like, oh my God, that makes this makes living so much easier. It makes well, getting- yeah, when we start to normalize that it's normal to be flawed, it's yeah. normal to be, to have sadness, anger. I mean, we, we code those feelings from a society perspective as bad, you know, Mm -hmm. like those are bad feelings and you want more good feelings. And, and, you know, we, everyone should be in joy. And then you look at things like social media that everyone's highlight reel is sort of for the most part on their social media. So then we compare our life and we go, well, gosh, I don't have a Aston Martin and I'm not flying to, uh, I don't know, the Barbados or the Maldives. So I'm not doing that. So there must be some sort of issue, you know, like this other person is living the best life and I have, you know, it's struggling to pay rent or or whatever it is. And then we, we compare ourselves and benchmark to this bullshit fake life that's being posted. And we don't see that behind. I've, I remember a long time ago, I took the belief that I needed to make sure that no one was pedestaled, you know, that I, every time I met someone who I had pedestaled, they always fell off that pedestal anyways, because you realize that everybody's human. Everybody's human and everybody suffers. Everybody has flaws and everybody has sadness and anger and dysfunction. You know, those people that we fell in love with who were like, oh, they're perfect. And then you find out they are not, you know, that person. And especially when you're in a relationship and you go through the honeymoon phase where literally nothing they can do is wrong. 
And then all of a sudden you realize that they, they sometimes don't wear deodorant other times, you know, they fart, you know, the normal human experience. Right. And I feel like there's just a big collective sigh when we go, Oh yeah, that's so nice to know that other people do these things. Right. It's such a relief. Right. And yet it'd be so wonderful if everyone was just authentic and we were, the whole thing was normalized from the get go. Yeah. I feel like there's that. I don't want to say it's a conflict, but there's this biological need to fit in. That is, you know, this need to attach, this need to be connected. Mm -hmm. That is often in conflict with authenticity and expression. Mm -hmm. And of course, when authenticity and expression threaten our attachment, attachment generally wins. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's at least the learned younger version. You know, the young person, the little child learns don't be me if it threatens losing mom and dad or culture. Yes. So for anyone listening, that is, that's why we suppress self expression, Mm -hmm. you know, for survival. But then as we get older, I feel like a lot of um, the work that you're talking about is so much about taking these coded moments. You know, you were talking about the young girl whose father hit her Mm -hmm. and, um, you know, fantasizing of hitting back or Mm -hmm. doing whatever she needed to do the, whatever emotional expression got stunted in that moment right. gets fully given voice to yes. or action or expression or fantasy yes. so that then behind that is now just this like this it's sort of the coding moment so so then you would code that because that would fit perfectly sort of in the framework of ptsd that the next yes. time you feel that feeling you're rushed back to being six in a kitchen where your father hit you not consciously but your body is still stunted in that moment. Is that right? It's sort of freeze-framed? Exactly, exactly. It re- the body remembers. So then when we get angry in the future or someone is aggressive or even actually, because I think what happens a lot is if you're that vigilant child now as an adult, and it could be any emotional anger too. It doesn't have to be physical. It could be just that you're a scared little kid mm-hmm. you know, and mom was really allowed or explosive or you know, through plates or whatever it was. Then all of a sudden, when you get to be an adult, you know, you're, as soon as you see any potential of anger in someone, it's mm-hmm. like you code what is maybe a two out of 10 as the 10 out of 10. Exactly. Exactly. Right. Because there's a young part there that then is triggered and becomes front and center. And you, you cease to be able to think like a rational adult anymore and to even be able to use words, right? That's like the magic you know, many, many times a day with my patients, I'm like, you know, when you were young, you had no words to be able to say, as you mentioned before, about setting limits and boundaries. Like, don't talk to me that way. Like, that is hurtful. Yeah. And it's intent to hurt me. So there's so many, we can use words when we, when we can stay grounded. And, um, you know, in AEDP, one of the things that um, Diana Fosha, who was the developer of the method, uh, first said that just was like, it was like a revelation that the goal is to be able to feel deal and relate all at the same time. And when we can feel, deal and relate all at the same time, we have our wits about us and we can utilize all our life experiences and knowledge to communicate and get along, you know, at the highest level. But like, as you're saying, if we don't have any education, if we don't have, um, we haven't worked on ourselves, we will get triggered left and right and we won't even realize that we're operating from young and emotional states that really um, don't serve us. So if someone is listening right now is like, well, shit, where do I start? You know, like where, 
So how would someone know? What would be the symptoms that start that someone might have for a long time now or just beginning of these suppressed core emotions? What would be the symptoms that would be showing up in their life today? Well, um, we'll start with the, the basics uh, of anxiety and depression, but also the symptoms that won't go noticed. Like for me, how I coped with my anxiety in my childhood all the way up through when I learned um, about emotions and, and the science of emotions was that I just kept moving. I moved so fast being productive. I could not stop moving and being productive. And it was great because in our culture that served me, I was great at school. Yeah. I wanted to be in school forever because I, as long as I could study, it was a great distraction. I was learning. It was fulfilling. But then I crashed and burned from being too productive and went through a depression. It was too much stress on my system from just absorbing everything and doing everything. Yeah. So one thing is the way that I would kind of help somebody diagnose, for lack of a better word, or notice that in themselves is, can you slow down? And if you can't slow down, it's probably because when you slow down, you start to feel something that is uncomfortable. Yeah. And one of the reasons I love sharing emotion education is because for me, I need to understand why something is happening before I can then go into a process to, to help myself. So I need I, the intellectual education in how emotions work in the mind and body and their relationship to anxiety and depression and defenses, which is all diagrammed on that change triangle. And that if you go through emotions, you calm yourself and how to do that. Uh, I think it's so important for me and so many others who I've heard from because it demystifies what's happening. And so even if you're, if you start to feel uncomfortable, if you, let's say you can't stop moving and you've heard this podcast and you say, okay, let me see if I can just slow down for a moment. And now you start to feel that like vibration in your body, or you start to feel like like an emptiness, like a black hole of, of despair. That's just, you know, you don't want to get too close to you have an intellectual understanding of trauma and emotions that at least says, I know I have a little bit now of an understanding what's happening for me and I can organize it. I think that was the main thing for me is that it organized my mind in a, in, in a, in a really helpful way that helped me understand why I felt the way that I did and a roadmap to getting to back to feeling better. And, uh, it works for everybody because it's, it's universal phenomenology. It's just how the brain and mind and body work together when it comes to emotions. And so I think one of the ways, one of the other ways of recognizing if we're blocked up with emotions besides anxiety and depression and knowing that we can't slow down is if our family, you know, listen to what people are telling you. If you're difficult to get along with, it probably means you can't tolerate certain feelings. Yeah. If you're using substances too much and it's, you're ambivalent about giving them up, that's okay. But it's, you can also add to that that I probably have some emotions that I need to, to deal with and learn about emotions and see what resonates, see what feels right. Character kind of problems, like being chronically crusty and angry and irritable, that again is a symptom, right? That doesn't say there's anything wrong with you, but it's a symptom of underlying blocked emotions. Feeling small and bad about yourself and blaming yourself is a symptom of underlying emotions. Blaming others constantly when things yeah. well is another symptom of underlying emotions. So these are defenses and there's so many of them. I list them on my website and I list them in the book. But you're right in asking the question because the hardest part is to really 
it's easy to look at other people. It's much harder to look at ourselves and to really take a good look and say, what are we doing? And where are we on this change triangle? Are we in defensive modes? And what are those? Or are we in inhibitory emotion mode of anxiety, guilt, and shame? Or are we feeling our emotions? Or are we in this authentic, open-hearted state that is where we all want to spend much more time, where we feel calm and connected and relaxed, and that's where we can feel, deal, and relate in life and really thrive. So it's important to kind of notice where you are in this map, and then it tells you what to do next to feel better. Yeah, I love that part of the system that it is. Here's the defensive ways we do things and how it might show up in our life. Okay, here's the inhibitory emotions that connect to those things, why we do those things. And then here's where the core emotions connect to those inhibitory emotions. So it's just such a beautiful sort of cascade, triangle. Yes. Quote, unquote. Exactly. Uh, And it made immediate sense to me. It doesn't make immediate sense to everybody. Many people it does. Like when I first saw it uh, at this emotion conference, I was like, oh my God, I now understand myself. Um, John, my husband husband will say it, it took him 10 years to really get it. And, but this work, there's no goal. It's a lifelong process. And any little bit we do to help understand ourselves is important. It, it, it can't, it doesn't need to be big. Just, you know, even taking the time to notice if you're in defensive states, don't beat yourself up for it, just validate it and know that there's a good reason. And we go into defensive states of being because the combination of the blocked core emotions and the inhibitory emotions that are keeping them down, the anxiety, guilt, and shame create an emotional cocktail that feels awful inside. Yeah. And no one likes that one. We have to figure out ways to block them. And let me just also say that I'm not even teaching or advocating that we should be in these open, vulnerable, emotional states at all time. That, that's not practical. We have to work and we have to accomplish things. Uh, I'm not even saying that it's good to wear your heart on your sleeve. What I'm really saying is that we're out of balance. We're too much in our heads as a result of a society that promotes being in our head. And um, it started with Descartes, really, that said, I think, therefore, I am. And what we now know by wonderful science and emotion researchers uh, like Antonio Damasio and Alan Shore and all these many, many scientists is that we, Bud Craig, is that we feel, therefore, we are. (laughs) We are not in connection with our feelings. We have lost our vitality and we have lost really an important compass for how to live and be well. Yeah. And I think the two things there, one, I love how the book and just this understanding of emotion for people who, and I'm just going to put it out here. I mean, if you're listening to this and you're a human being, you likely have defense mechanisms and you likely suppress emotion. That's just the way it is because that's how we've all survived because no one's taught us any of this. So then it's like, which ones are mine? You know, for me, I started to look at my relationship to alcohol and then I'm like, okay, well, am I playing whack-a-mole with other things that are just taking the place of alcohol? Like we can do it with over-exercising. We can do it with any form of addiction, any form. You could do it with Instagram. You know, Mm -hmm. you could do it with anything that hits your dopamine store that makes you not deal with something else. Exactly. And so in that, what I love about the systemized version of this is that we can go, okay, here's this behavior that I'm non-judgmentally going to look at. I think if we look at it kind of like an archaeologist, like a scientist, and we go, okay, let's just look at this with no judgment. What are, here are my behaviors, not who I am. Then 
we can look at emotion being a biological response, which I love that you say that. And I remember when we first spoke, you talked about how finally there's like a a science to this thing that I'm going through that actually is going to make it make sense. So I don't, so we don't get lost in the embodied version of it first. Mm -hmm. It's like when I first felt anger, I could at least biologically go, whoa, that's anger. And that's all these things that are rushing through me. And, you know, I, I also find that balance that you were saying, like, it's not about living with your heart on your sleeve or, or being too closed or, or any of those things. Yeah, I think it's that minute feeling. Because if you are, there are times when you should be wide open and your heart should be open and you should be sharing and vulnerable and you're in a relationship or whatever. But then there's moments even in that relationship where something happens and you, and you have a feeling. Maybe it's anger, maybe it's something like that. And it's saying, put up a boundary. You know, so just when we get to know the extremes of all these feelings, we can dance so safely in the clean versions of all of them. Exactly. Because there is healthy shame too, isn't there? I would imagine there's, right. Yes, that it's really, all these things are about like a a spectrum. So healthy shame keeps us, as you said before, it's so crucial that we stay connected for survival, more so than even having our own feelings. That to stay connected when we're infants and babies and children is paramount. So when we are taught to do something and, and, you know, our mother wags our finger at us and say, that's bad behavior. We learn it so that we can stay in the good graces of first our families and then our siblings and then our, our peer groups in school and our groups and our, you know, religious groups, if we belong to churches and synagogues and mosques, but absolutely. But it's what happens is when we are shamed, not for our behavior, that helps us become more civilized. But when we are shamed from core aspects of mm-hmm. our healthy, authentic expression. Exactly. So when we're shamed for our emotions, that's no good. And parents don't get any parenting book on how to do that. You know, they shut their kids down because they think that's what they're supposed to do. It's like, oh, you shouldn't feel sad. That's painful. So don't feel sad here. Come over here and look at this shiny little toy as opposed to just a simple thing saying, yeah, that really is sad and validating it. Um, and let me give you a big hug. And when you feel better, we'll go play and you will feel better soon because emotions are always temporary and I'm here for you. And it's okay to be feeling whatever you're feeling. Same thing with anger, you know, like in parents often tell their kids not to be angry or, you know, like with siblings, like it's not okay to hate your brother when they say, you know, I hate Johnny, but that, that doesn't foster good relationships with it's like, but I do hate him right yes. now. Exactly. So, um, ironically, my brother's name is John. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. And as a kid, I can remember hating him in moments. Yes. But loving him in the grand, but hating him in a moment, of course I did. Absolutely. And He's older. He was a dick. He sometimes, right. you know, sometimes he did stuff that deserved to be hated. Yeah. Very hated me too, though. Younger brother, you know. Right. They're, they're jealous. There's all sorts of great reasons, but it's, it's important for, uh, uh, for parents to say, you know, it's okay to have your feelings about your brother. That's totally understandable, but you can't hit him and you can't call him names. But here, you could take this doll here and pretend it's Johnny and you could punch this doll, but we don't hit people and we don't, you know, hurt people. And that's teaching kids how to use fantasy at an early age for the benefit of releasing emotions. And then it becomes a game and then they feel better. It's like, you know, it's not, it's kind of counterintuitive. You're not creating aggressive, angry people. You're actually creating calm, connected people by allowing in emotions and fantasies 
uh, as opposed to people who can't fantasize and symbolize their anger. Those are the people who act out maybe and become shooters, those type of things that they are so filled with rage and there was no one there to metabolize that rage and put it back in a way that was digestible and manageable. And so it just builds up and becomes an action. There's no fantasy in between. Does that make sense? Yeah, it makes total sense that there was never, uh, they don't even know how to access it. That's right. You know, there's not even, and the biological pathway to it is pretty, uh, pretty, not even there. Unless it's through that pressure cooker sort of experience. I find that so true of so many people that they, they receive, 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 not paying attention to the small parts of anger that say boundary, 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 you know, because I know it, uh, for me, I was quite disassociated from that feeling. Like, even if there was a behavior that was not okay, um, I was afraid of standing up for myself. I was afraid of having a boundary. I think in a lot of ways, when I look back, I think in a lot of ways, it was because there was a lot of um, media when I was a kid that men are bad, that anger is bad, that men are aggressive. And so the last thing I ever wanted to be was like them. I didn't want to be like those men. But then what did I, I ended up being like a doorman. So that wasn't very attractive. Mm-hmm. And, and and not knowing that balance, that that anger, clean anger is actually, as you said earlier, changes worlds. It's what changes lives. It's so essential to tap into. It's what says no in a way that's very assertive. And then the little child in us can start to be free, the expression of joy, the expression, because we feel protected. We feel safe. We feel like we have our own back. Exactly. That's so beautifully stated. Exactly. That we feel safe when we can use words. To really, I mean, you can kindly set boundaries too. I mean, you you want, I, I totally agree with you. It's like the last step when people process traumatic anger is when they feel angry is you take that energy, put it in your backbone and you assert, but you can really assert in a, in a relatively decent way, like saying, you know, honey, you know, what you're doing is really making me angry and I don't want you to do it anymore. Or you know, let's figure out another way if you ha- if it's something that has to be done where where we can t- keep talking about it and, and make it better. That really all there is is talking in relationships. I, right now, I'm, I'm aware I'm being vague, but I'm even thinking about my own um, difficulty in saying that I couldn't do something, this idea of perfectionism. And yeah. really, that if I said no, that ultimately... The fear for me was that if I say no, you know, I don't want to make you dinner. I worked all day and I just don't want to cook is that I won't, I wouldn't be as lovable. And I think on some level, I felt that I would be rejected or abandoned. And the, the, I ended up marrying someone that really enjoyed me doing all these things. And the process of seeing the disappointment on his face was excruciating as I practiced saying no tolerating his his own feelings right because if you're going to set limits and boundaries people have a right to react to those yeah right so many of my patients say well i would be able to say no if only you know somebody didn't show me that they were upset or disappointed or angry with me and i was like well that's not fair you get to say no and they get to be disappointed but you don't have to just you know my kind of question would be what's the hardest part about tolerating somebody's disappointment or sadness or anger and then we get into a whole other realm like what is the duty that you can't just have empathy for it and say okay we'll get over it well yeah when your self-worth is attached to their feelings about you rather than the boundary that you set establishing your self-worth 
you know, that's that um, adulting, that uh, individuating that mm-hmm. occurs through feeling these feelings and using them. I mean, when people finally tap into things like clean anger and, um, you know, disgust, fear, and you yeah. use these to move their their lives, they're likely going to be setting some pretty dramatic and powerful boundaries. And the response to that is going to be people who don't like those boundaries, you know, because they've been conditioned to these are the agreements that we live by. Yeah. Why are you changing all of a sudden? You're not supposed to change. You're supposed to stay the same. I liked it the way you were. Right. I yeah. I'm sad. I'm on pills. I'm depressed. I'm doing this. I'm doing this. I'm drinking all, you know, like, I don't like this version of me. But when you change that side of you, then all of a sudden you invite everyone else to change. And what a beautiful gift that is. Exactly. And when someone is telling you, you know, I don't, I I didn't, this is not what I signed up for. You can respond with, I know, and I am so sorry. And, you know, I think we're going to find our way through it. And maybe there's other ways that I could make it up to you. Also, it allows you to be more entitled to say what you need and want and what you don't need and want. And and ultimately, that's how relationships become really trustworthy, really loving, really connected. It's just amazing how through what what we think is going to be such a a destructive and and deleterious toll on a relationship becomes the very thing that makes it very close and connected. Yeah, it's ironic that the fear of losing the other, we lose ourselves. Ultimately, that's how most of us, including me live our lives till we don't, you know, we, we abandon a lot of our own decisions, our own priorities, our own feelings in order to stay connected. Yes. Not realizing that when you start to re-embody, re-feel, get back in, you know, go through this process that Hillary's talking about in her book, you start to get connected back to yourself. And when you get connected back to yourself, not only will you have far more fulfilling, deeper connections with other people, But anyone who can't hold that anymore through your own emotional expression will not be able to be in your life anymore. Exactly. And so you're connected to you and connected to people who respect you. Exactly. And that is such a powerful place to be. And I have to say, for me, has been a consistent learning. You know, how do I dance with me and dance with her or dance, you know, with my partner or with anyone? How do I hold on to me and respect them and and, and how do I find compromise and their, you know, all these different, it's such a learning, it's such a learning. And it's an, as you said uh, so beautifully before that it doesn't stop, you know, it never stops getting to know the breadth of our humanity, of our emotion, the complexities of what it means to be a human. It's a really beautiful experience. It is. And I find that calming that it never stops because whatever happens, it, there's something after that. It's like, it, it's, you know, people will often say, well, well, what if somebody says this to me? Or what if my, my, my spouse says this to me? So I'm, I'll say, it's not what happens. It's what, then what happens next? So there's always the control of how we respond and we can respond in ways that are constructive and that promote, promote growth and promote honesty. And it's true that some people who change will, will have to, that the partner in their life won't be right for them anymore, that they were just kind of we're, we're connected through somebody praying, let's say, on someone that is going to be a doormat or do whatever they want. Yeah. It's very, it's very challenging, very scary to go through a period of aloneness to start again. But the way you look, you know, what's the alternative? 
if you have, you could stay the same where you're comfortable, but being abused or neglected, or you could change, you're moving into a new type of discomfort. Maybe it's worth doing something different. Yeah. And I always, um, I know it's initially much more challenging, but when you're in a relationship, but you're not in yourself, that's very different than when you lose that person and you gain yourself, you actually find that you're not, you might be alone, mm-hmm. not lonely anymore. That's right. And that is a scary space because we're transitioning. And, and for me, this, and I think for everyone I work with, this is the hardest part is going from, if you love me, I love me, mm-hmm. to if I love me, end of story. Then it's great if, if you're in my life too, that's beautiful. And that's the type of people we attract when we're in that space. But woo, man, that dance is it's a never moving one and it's not always easy. Oh my God, it's so hard. And um, truthfully, I've been to I've been through two major depressions in my life, and one was around was around a breakup of a relationship. And I had been avoiding being alone my entire life and with serial monogamy and um I, I didn't know, I sort of knew, like I, I couldn't admit to myself that I was terrified of being alone, but you know, there's all these things that are kind of semi-conscious that in retrospect, you sort of know. And uh, again, like all these horrible struggles where you're at least kind of advocating for yourself, even though you're terrified. And even though I, I, I went through a depression, I had to go on Prozac for six months again and, and then come back up. Um, and it was still before I learned anything about emotions. This was all before I went back to school and became a therapist. But boy, what's so fascinating to me is in that period where um, my boyfriend moved out and I was alone and I was dreading that. And just the fear of that is what diminished my serotonin stores and made me get depressed. But once I was alone, I was like, what was I so afraid of? And most of these things are really childhood remnants. They're the childhood memory of what it meant to be alone. It's the childhood memory of what it meant to disappoint our parent. And we don't realize that as adults, we have so much more ability and so much more um, resilience because we have mature nervous systems and we're not dependent anymore like as children. So I can so resonate with the fear of big change and so wanting to reassure people that when you are taking care of yourself, like you said, the self-esteem that that brings and of struggling and prevailing that the confidence that that brings for some, you know, hopefully temporary uh, adversity. And even in the, in the scary feelings, one should seek out support. You don't have to be alone. But if you're going to do something hard, like leave a bad relationship, you don't have to do it alone. There are support groups. You can form peer groups. There's many people that are going through the same thing that we're all going through because we're all human. There's nothing unique about what anyone is experiencing. I, I really think, and you just have to find people that can support you and hold your hand. And most things aren't as scary as we think they're going to be. It's the idea of it that's scary. Amen to that. Well, thank you so much for sharing all of this info. I we're done. <laughs> yeah, I need to reiterate to people yeah. that they must, must, must. Well, I mean, I could talk to you for like probably three, four hours <laughs> about all of this stuff. Um, we've gone about an hour, right? Really? Oh my God, that one's yeah. so bad. I think that's right. It's 9.30 now for me. So 12.30. I could, I could talk about emotion education. Forever, right? Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> well, I think to, um, actually, before I go back to that, uh, um, I think about when I went through a breakup when I was 19 mm-hmm. and there was so much betrayal and so much sadness. And 
I'm sure from a clinical perspective, I was for sure depressed. Mm -hmm. uh, and then I found Halloween was right after that. I feel like Halloween should never occur right after a breakup. It's not a great holiday to have right after. And mm -hmm. I went out drinking and partying and, um, and I found that that's how I started to cope with things was I started to drink. And, and anyone at that time probably would have been like, oh, you're a college student. That's just normal behavior, right? Because it's so normalized in our yeah. culture. And, and then, so that was one way that I coped with it. The other one being really busy and the other one uh, seeking short-term affection. And all of those became my coping mechanisms for years. They were. Yeah, they worked really well, and they're often re rewarded with very positive um, experiences, endorphins, all those different things. Even, uh, you know, they're not necessarily your peer group doesn't look down upon them either, which is, right, because we're all sort of surrounded by other people doing the same thing. It's so fascinating to look back and see how the change from that, the transformation from that took years. Oh, my God, I, I wish I knew about AEDP and your I mean, your book wasn't written back then when I went through that, but I never would have looked for the book because mm -hmm. that just wasn't normal. I think I listened to freaking Boys to Men or something, you know, and just listened to sad music and didn't pay. There was no socialization that was saying like, hey, I notice you're really sad. You want to talk about it. Right. Still, I didn't want anyone to see it. Yeah. We're a little bit better, but still a long way. People don't even know. That exists that, I, that I'm writing about still. It's just relegated to um, the margin still. But the, the zeitgeist is changing, but it's fascinating. And I, too, wish that I had this book. I wrote the book that I wish I had had in my uh, probably late teens, early 20s. Um, but I would not have looked at anything that, that smelled of feelings if it wasn't backed up by hard science, because that's how I was raised. Anything that didn't have a science backup was, you know, BS. And so... Uh, you know, the other crazy thing is why was this, even with the science, why is it not mainstream? I don't really understand it. But, and that's what I'm trying to change is um, because even as psychotherapy, AEDP is growing like crazy, but it's still not mainstream. It's things like CBT, which focus on thoughts, but leave out emotions in the body. And so I'm not saying CBT is bad by any means. It helps a lot of people, but I think of it more as an adjunct, uh, something to be integrated into the full way of understanding humanity. And if you're not working with emotions as physical experiences, you're not helping the brain change in, in, in as deep and as quick a way that is, and as efficient way. It's like an inefficient way to, to get some change. through. Well, the when you think about the origins of psychotherapy and psychology, it was about intellectualizing what you're going through right. in your body, right? So, you know, you're really in a lot of ways, um, it's a bit of a revolution mm -hmm. in, in traditional psychotherapy and, or, and psychiatry, you know, that yes. you're bringing in, okay, here's this, let's get back in our bodies. Let's look at the correlation of these emotions and suppressed emotions to disease yeah, and all of these different things. And, and, and again, in fairness, I know, you know, people are listening to this that were around in the 70s for encounter groups. There was, you know, again, it was considered new agey yeah. that, you know, in New York City with a, psych, a psychiatrist father was relegated to like, oh, those are crazy therapists. Over there. <laughs> those are potheads who do that. <laughs> but 
the the science has caught up because of the um, the, the MRI. The invention of the MRI allowed us to begin to um, image healthy brains and learn how emotions work, and can light up. You know, have people look at uh, look at movies and see where their sadness is, and know that it gets. Uh, emotions happen in the middle of the brain. And we know that in the middle of the brain, we don't have conscious control over emotions. So now we know, okay, you're not weak for control if you can't control emotions because nobody can control emotions. We can only, after we have them, squash them down or work with them. And it's much, much better to learn how to work with them. Much better for health. Well, yeah. When we look at the research on what happens to high conflict emotions that where we don't feel connected to our partners, where we're just in a constant state of not feeling feeling suppressed. We get inflamed. We get mm-hmm. inflammation. We get leaky gut. And when yep. we're in constant states of fight, flight, freeze, mm-hmm. because we're frozen. I think about that a lot of that, how the trauma response gets frozen in our body. Yes. So a lot of us are walking around in perpetual states of freeze. Yes. You know, or flight or fight. Yes. You know, we're in all of these perpetual states. And I, I find you could often sort of, when you get to know someone, see which one is their sort of, you know, <laughs> what is their default? But mm-hmm. when we're stuck in it, that our body is, you know, when we look at people who have digestive issues, people mm-hmm. who have issues like that, it's because our gut is not saying like, hey, we should digest this food right now when we're in a state of like, we should run away from what's scary. Right. Because when you're in these states of high emotional overwhelm and just even an emotion, it affects every organ in the body through the vagus nerve. So it affects, yeah. the, affects the lungs, it affects the heart, it affects the, um, the, the ability of us to fight off disease, autoimmune diseases and cancers. I mean, there's all different types of um, systems that are affected by blocked emotions, high anxiety, high depression and um, Right. It's, it's making us very unhealthy. And well, it doesn't it, yeah. Well, and look at all the rapid increase in autoimmune. I mean, right. it's all correlated, people. It's all correlated. <laughs> right. Learn about emotions. Work right. on yourself. It's That's worth- the secret to it all. You want to learn how to free yourself and your body, get out of that perpetual state of just constantly being stuck. Yeah. Um, learn how to feel. And you can do that by picking up Hillary's book, It's Not Always Depression. It's such a good book. Mm-hmm. I feel like everybody should read that book. I, I, it, it is for everybody. It's, hopefully it'll be taught in, in high schools one day where we'll just start learning this stuff. And, and parents, it's good for parents to read it so they don't unwittingly create excess anxiety and shame in their children. And um, right, knowledge is power. So you can learn about it and you don't even have to work on yourself. It's just good to know. And, or you can do the exercises in the book, or you can really work a whole program. The other thing I do want to say for people that can't afford the book or don't want to buy the book, or which you could also listen to on audio, is that I have um, tons of free resources. I'm really trying to load up uh, as many free resources as I can on my website. And I have it, there's a Change Triangle YouTube channel that has presentations on the Change Triangle and all the way to long presentations to little one minute videos on emotional health. And my website has um, explains in brief what the change triangle is and has a downloadable change triangle and a what to do at each corner and um, my blog, which um, I've been writing for several years now. And it's on every emotion and every topic. And you can kind of find the ones that fit for you and, or send them to loved ones. Or you can take the book out of the library as well and ask for it in your local library. But I wrote it to be a really quick, easy, sort of a beach read because I don't like to read boring books. So I tried to make it something <laughs> you know, 
couple of days. And then if you like it, go back and then work it slowly. Oh, and such a I, good book. I also just want to say, if I can, that I wrote the book not only to be read alone, but to be read in partnership and to be read in groups because there's lots of stories to make it interesting that show how other people have worked the change triangle to go from defended and, and blocked and distressed states down to an authentic, open-hearted state. And um, you can read the stories together and the exercises, which I call experiments, are very gentle and simple to kind of help you identify emotions and teach you some basics that can take you through the rest of your life. Oh, I'm so excited for people to touch this book. It is brilliant. <laughs> you are brilliant. Thank you for being here. Thank you for sharing you. Thanks for letting me come on and talk about this. Uh, of course. And what is uh, your website? Yeah, you can either go to hillaryjacobshendel.com or you can go to thechangetriangle.com or if you just Google Hillary Jacobs Hendel or Hillary Hendel, there's lots of stuff that comes up. And if you don't want to like a big commitment, probably a good place to start is um, there was an, what started this whole book thing for me as I wrote an article an op-ed for the New York Times called It's Not Always Depression. And that's um, that article went viral, but it's a good article to kind of concisely understand more about what I'm talking about. And then if you want to do, um, you know, the whole enchilada that's in the book, it just teaches you everything that I wished I had learned. And uh, it gives you the benefit of my experience and my education. Amazing. We'll make sure we link all that stuff out. Hillary, you're such a blessing. I really appreciate you. Thank you. Thank you.